the first episode of a brand new podcast called Far Left in Texas. I'm Shannon Carter, the far left here in Texas, who's the host and the writer. I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class, hetero, cis woman. I live and work in the Dallas area with my white, cis husband. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am in a state where saying that outside of my academic context raises eyebrows at the very least, which is something I'll talk about here as we go. As a leftist in this flyover country, I'm actually far from alone, surprisingly. Texas is hella red, of course, but the radical left is relentless and growing. For example, the DSA chapter is huge and growing, maybe less so after 2020 hit us, but certainly growing in response to that. Uh, the North Texas defunding, defund the police effort is, is uh, going strong even through 2020, especially 2020, um, as, as uh, people got together on the other side of the... Um, racial uprising with George Floyd and everything else that happened to break things open. Um, another example that happened earlier when Trump enacted the anti-Muslim ban, the Texas left and pretty much everybody seemed to pack the DFW airports in solidarity. And these beautiful moments of, of um, lawyers, just as they probably did across the nation, sitting in hallways and huddled near the ba uh, baggage claim area, working with people deeply affected victims of, of this ban, or maybe holding up signs that are um, offering uh, legal services from a board certified lawyer says things like that. Um, the trans initiative is really strong at uh, doing important work like data collection that brings faces on this. Now Gather, for example, of the Trans Pride Initiative is really exciting and does amazing work um, uh, relentlessly. Uh, this trans uh, fight for trans rights in the Texas incarceration um, complex, this uh, for-profit system that as one can imagine, in a state like this is hugely, hugely um, hostile and um, violent against um, bodies that don't conform to the political and ideological fight of, you know, uh, we know what we're talking about. Um, in the in this area, the Black Lives Matter movement has been a huge organizing force to bring together these desperate different leftist organizations towards a single um, series of, of movements that are um, uh, that include, you know, previously like the. Um, uh, um, well, various very, very, very problematic um, uh, House bills that didn't become uh uh, I'm getting lost here, but you know, the DACA and the ICE issues and so forth. And <clears throat> interestingly, um, I, you know, that there's a, uh, we've had a very um, robust North Texas um, social socialist reading group that um, has been a great amount of intellectually fulfilling um Work and perhaps my favorite um, is uh, is the North Texas Jacobin Reading Group, the Jacobin Magazine. Um, that's gorgeous itself, just beautifully um, aesthetically and also really great internally 
as well as one of my favorite podcasts called The Dig. Not set in Texas, but certainly dealing with Texas. Speaking of podcasts that are my absolute favorite and that seem to be really um, directly related to what I'm doing here is called Know Your Enemy. And it's, um, it's about the conservative intellectual movement, the intellectual side of it. Um, and it takes the texts that generate this hate <laughs> um, seriously and where it's coming from. I don't know that there's a leftist podcast like that that takes uh, the work of the right seriously, except that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm looking specifically at texts that I'm arguing kind of, if we look at them rhetorically, function as like a blueprint for white supremacy, especially the um, 1836 project here in Texas, which is the Texas um, analog to the 1776 project, which I'll be talking about, all, both of which are responses to the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning um, uh, 1619 project and all of the discourse about critical race theory and anti-critical race theory and this assumption and assertion that ever at any moment in our lives or any life um, before that um, critical race theory played any role whatsoever in the schools, especially not in Texas. But that Jacobin writing group, um, just want to speak to, I'm an academic. Um, I've got tenure. I teach graduate classes in uh, feminist theory and rhetorical practices, rhetorical historiography especially. But I, I want to focus especially on how important um, non-academic spaces have been for my intellectual work. Um, for example, um, one of the books that I, I can't... Um, uh, I can't um, emphasize enough is uh, this gorgeous book called Wayward Lives. It actually came to me from uh, the Jacobin reading group list, and I've used it in graduate level courses on black feminist thought. And I've also um, used it in undergraduate courses on women writers. If I had taught rhetoric and race more recently, I would have definitely included it in that. It's just a rich text with so much to pull from. And so that's a bit of the background of why Texas is a relevant space, not just as a, you know, homogenous red zone of hate. And then I'm on my island by myself. That's not what's happening here at all. There's there's a lot of, of really interesting resistance that happens everywhere on the planet that Texas is not one thing any more than anything else is one thing. The borders that surround Texas, just like everywhere else, are imaginary. The consequences are significant and violent and serious, but the borders themselves, we made them up, just like we made up the um, the monetary choices that um, fuel capitalism and, and uh, serve to um, you know, sort who gets access to what um, over generations and so forth. So as I said, I'm an academic, and I'll be working from that uh, perspective and that work. Um, I study and teach rhetorical historiography, which is basically a method to study and interpret history that focuses less on what happened and then how or why we might remember it that way, how it's interpreted, specifically how the text that we write or the films that are made or the popular um, 
aspects that are created help defend white supremacy? You know, what are those texts that um, surge in moments like these to try to defend Western civilization or whatever it is that the fight's about? These culture wars, so-called, are not new. Um, and I'll, I look at those from the perspective of how they play out here in Texas, especially over the 20th century and especially in terms of, of reconstruction and the legacy of slavery. So I devour um, books from this period, you know, uh, school textbooks. Um, Texas is a particularly rich uh, place for that. Um, textbooks that are both... Um, uh, mid-century textbooks that dominate like Fehrenbach's um, wildly popular um, and also hugely problematic and uh, uh, text on Texas history that was basically the only one for a very, very long time. And uh, I'm going to be offering reviews of specific texts. So that particular huge um, problematic book um, uh, fair and box story. And then also um, D.W. Griffith's um, The Birth of Texas, um, which is um, comes off the heels of The Birth of the Nation, which is, of course, about um, the KKK and helps bring that into uh, fruition again. So that's it. Basically, I kind of obsess about humans and the world and how white supremacy reinforces itself through the stories we tell about ourselves and who we are that defend white supremacy by controlling the narrative about chattel slavery and its legacy, about settler colonialism and the like. Things like, as I said, um, the um, novel that kind of that brought definitely brought back KKK um, uh, the Klansman, a quote, a historical romance of the KKK, Klu Ku Klux Klan, that came out in 1905. This is the first of this massively popular Reconstruction trilogy by white supremacist Thomas Dixon. Um, and then, as there will always be, there are connections to Texas. In the case of Thomas Dixon's hugely popular um, white supremacist books, um, Sutton Griggs, who um, was a Texas writer who would carry his, um, uh, created his own press um, so that he could carry these novels around that he just wrote and wrote and wrote that in one part, one point were sponsored by, um, uh, by a church to resist specifically Dixon's um, hugely popular books. His novels, he was a black nationalist in Texas um, who, uh, picked in his fictional universe Waco as the place that will bring together all of these people in this particular ideological force. And there's there, it is an amazing, weird novel, which I'll go, which I'll look into. But Sutton Griggs has become a popular, um, a popular work to study more recently. There's a, there's very recently a biography about him that just came out. So I'll talk about that novel um, in a um, at some point. Um, I'll talk about things like birth, the birth of Texas, which came, which was created by D.W. Griffith the year after he um, uh, produced and uh, the birth of the nation, 
arguably the most problematic, um, racist, um, openly white supremacist um, film in history that came out in 1915 that's based on the Klansmen. It was, um, it was, it's still studied as kind of a work of art. I mean, this, this guy, um, as a genius filmmaker, which makes him all the more dangerous. It's a three hours. Um, it is, um, so painful to watch. Um, but I would recommend it if you can stand it. Um, in this podcast, I'll be watching and reading things so you don't have to, but, but that exists in the world as a cultural touchstone text. The year after that, he published or he um, put out The Birth of Texas. It's called something else, but I really like the, it's, this is kind of the subtitle, The Birth of Texas. And of course, it's the story of white supremacy in, um, that leads to the Alamo, that leads to the independence, you know, resistance to um, Mexico, which, uh, you know, Anyway, I'll talk a lot about that, that our story does not begin in 1836 with a Alamo and that there we have um, that the heroes and villains story are not how actually humans actually work and that these particular narratives that simplify the story of our history, um, even in moments where we think that they're being... Uh, enlightened, like, you know, capturing the story of Rosa Parks as just somebody who got tired on a bus and decided to sit down rather than capturing all of the movement that was part of that in her radical work as a field worker for, um, uh, to um, gather evidence for, um, like the Klansmen uh, from 1905 on the KKK um, and the romance of that that brought that dangerous thing into being um, and uh, the birth of a Texas, which was also created by D.W. Griffith, um, the one who created that incredibly problematic, the most racist um, film in potentially in history, The Birth of a Nation, which was screened at um, Woodrow Wilson's White House, um, the one that was so well-regarded and... Uh, that he saw it as like writing lightning, writing history in lightning, writing the story of American, of reconstruction in the American South in lightning, as though there's one story and that's the story that we're going to hold on to. So in the space, um, in all the spaces, I'm, as I said, I'm obsessed about the stories we tell about who we are and what we value as a country and primarily as a state, as Texas. And specifically looking at the notion of whiteness and uh, and I look at history histories written, um, captured in popular film and novels and so forth, and especially textbooks that, um, how they function rhetorically. I don't challenge the truth of them because that is, that is, others are doing that. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward, but what I look at is, is how they work rhetorically to, either convince people who didn't already believe it, I think that that's less likely, but more likely to give 
people a narrative to use to defend white supremacy, either internally or in their environment or politically or um, in policy, terms of policy or a million other ways that that happens. Um, so I'm looking at things like the birth of Texas, which is, of course, about the Battle of the Alamo and where we have one, his, one hero, um, the white um, men who um, were at the Alamo, um, and then uh, one villain, Santa Ana, um, who was defeated, and then we birthed Texas. It didn't exist before that. There were no people or humans or anything that happened before that. There's no story about slavery. It's not part of it in this redemption narrative. So that's one version of it. This, uh, a redemption narrative where whiteness is the hero. White supremacy wins always because, like God, it must. White supremacy necessarily reasserts itself by reinforcing black inferiority in the, in the case of the Klansmen through violence um, and disenfranchisement. But as my, my primary focus is far left in Texas. And so in Texas... As I said, um, that's my primary focus. Here's the stuff. My starting point is today's poultry wars and how they work as a fight to control the narrative about this country and this state. Um, the culture wars right now I are your purposeful and rhetorical. That's what um, W.E.B. Du Bois calls in The Souls of Black Folk, which I think is 1903. He calls it history as propaganda and that he's not against history as pro uh, functioning as propaganda. It's just that, or, or nor, neither does he think, I think that it's possible for history um, and historians to not promote uh, some interpretation of the events based on available data to serve a particular purpose. That's certainly what he's doing in Black Reconstruction, um, which is to resist that lost cause narrative through the Dunning School that suggested that um, slavery was a good thing and that the people um, living under chattel slavery were mostly happy because this was the best they could do. And so, of course, that history is propaganda in the same way that these counter-narratives are, are propaganda, counter-narratives like the 1619 Project that suggests the important role that um, chattel slavery played in the creation of the nation. Um, I'm thinking right now and often of, of James Baldwin, who says that... Um, I love America more than any country in the world, and for exactly this reason, I reserve the right to criticize her endlessly. Of course, he ends up an uh, expatriate in, in um, Paris, but the fact still stands. So I'm interested in uh, the rhetoric of the culture wars, those that work to control the narrative. I suggest that, that and I will do this throughout the podcast, to uh, control the narrative. They can be understood in one of three ways. I'm sure there are others, but the redemptionist 
uh, these are the three ways. The first one is the redemptionist version. That is those lost cause folks, the birth of a nation folks, the birth of Texas folks, the ones that may allow for slavery in as real, but, um, but fights to preserve the white supremacy at the uh, heart of it that insists that chattel slavery was... Um, you know, not the point that people who are talking about race are making it about race and all of the other stuff that we see going on today. This is relevant to the story of Texas because as has been pointed out and as has been making people nuts to be pointing out that Mexico, when we became part of Mexico, um, before Texas was a state, it was uh, it was tense as because Mexico was anti-slavery, and so but there's also a desire to settle this area that would become called Texas. So Stephen F. Austin comes in and he says, "I will." I'm happy to to settle this, but I can't unless people bring their slaves. And so a good um, deal was made for people bringing in the um, humans as property to help them um, cultivate the land and and fight back um, anybody who already lives here and create the prosperity um, gospel that seems to be the driving theme of all of the white supremacist storytelling that happens in and about Texas. The second way of thinking about the narratives that are in control of how we understand this state and the story um, are those that say that, you know, we're not ideal. We've made some mistakes. We're not going to try to justify those mistakes as one does in the redemptionist narrative, but we think we can reform it just by little tweaks and, and so forth here. This is the, the space of the colorblind society that race shouldn't matter, regardless of the fact that it definitely matters, which is the reconstruction narrative, um, that it shouldn't matter, that um, good people don't see race, and that... Um, the root of things like police brutality are not the systems that um, perpetuate these injustices and inequities, but rather the few bad apples theory so that we can rewrite the ship um, that is the American experiment just by, you know, by diversity training for cops, for example, by rooting out the most racist cops, but leaving the systems as they are, um, keeping uh, qualified immunity, not doing any reform to the ways that the criminal justice system takes up non-white bodies. So finally, and importantly, and this is the narrative that I'm working with, um, is the reconstruction narrative that the problems from the legacy of chattel slavery are not fixable via just sensitivity training, 
but by reconstructing the institutions that have been built on the backs of of one people and the genocide of another that were not built to serve the people as a group and the way that narratives of redemption especially work to subvert any sort of argument that there have been unjust ways that the system has served others that these arguments like Baldwin of people who believe in um, every bit of what America's promises of all of the values and um, promises enshrined in the Constitution, but argue that the systems that have been developed were not designed to um, to allow for, um, I mean, they were designed exactly to support and to reinforce and to perpetuate white supremacy. The thing that I'm arguing can't have happened so squarely and so cleanly as we see it argued right now had not been had there not been some cultural and political voices that attempt to own and control the story. In this, I'll talk about both Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, which came out in 1936, that insisted that if we did reconstruction the right way, it would in fact have expanded beyond voting rights um, to deal with racial violence and the cultural tensions that have perpetuated these and are fighting for um, you know, control um, and that won through Jim Crow, through the, um, through the collapse of reconstruction in states like mine with, um, at the, with at the lead um, people like uh, Throckmorton, who in McKenning, my hometown, statue is still at the square and who is the only uh, governor to have ever been removed from office. Specifically, he was removed for, uh, from office for failing to and refusing to actually serving as an impediment, impediment for, to reconstruction. Um, I'll talk some about our fight to remove that statue. I'll talk some about the failure of that fight. And I'll talk especially about the city's decision, probably based on this second reformist um, argument, to have committees argue, research both sides. The side that says that the um, monument should be taken down or in this case, just moved to the Collin County um, uh, Historical Museum, and the side that says that anybody taking down any statue ever in the whole history of time is to erase history. Um, I'll talk especially about um, the other, the Black Reconstruction in Texas book that came out the same year that Du Bois published his seminal a black reconstruction. This is one that's been long out of t out of print. This is somebody that I'll be referring to quite a bit in my research because I'm working on a biography on him, and I'm also working on a critical reader for another text that has been out of print for a very long time. His Juneteenth collection, the very first collection or um, publication that ever came under that title, Juneteenth. Um, it's a uh, Anyway, I will talk about that, but that came out in 1932, and I'm attempting to reissue that. 
He published that um, equally radical treatise, um, Black Reconstruction, in 1935. And so, as I said, I'll be working with that a lot. And so here's the thing, the whole reason for the podcast the culture wars, I argue, surge at those moments of rupture, moments like these. Um, these are ruptures to the story like those racial uprisings of 2020, the Black Lives Matter stories that force a reckoning with the status quo, or that if you're on the Tucker Carlson side, force a obsession about whether people are making things about race that aren't about race and whether or not they value freedom and this idea of reverse racism and all of the rhetorical structures that perpetuate that line. My argument is that the left obsession about what is logical and what's truthful is not where the change can happen. It's by looking at the scholars who say that the problem is not the fight for the fight to against the perpetuation of these injustices and systemic oppression in particular is that we don't know enough about how how white supremacy works. Um, the scholar whose name I will put in the show notes, but I've entirely forgotten the name right now, um, says that we need to understand. White, how white supremacy works epistemologically. That is, like, um, it racism is a process, not a thing. Ontologically, it suggests that we can point at racism, the culprits of racism. That guy right there, um, who is on the police force, who um, definitely we can see is racist, and we've certified him racist, and so he needs to get off the force. That's that reformist narrative. Um, so I'll look over time at the first reconstruction, that is the reconstruction that followed the Civil War, the one that um, Dixon and the Birth of a Nation are writing against to usurp the narrative that there is any sort of other way of thinking about how this country might work except by... Um, uh, disenfranchising um, uh, one group on behalf of another, that that white supremacy begets and necessitates a, the belief in black inferiority. The second reconstruction, the civil rights movement, um, where what, what we can do to change things is to change the legal systems that mostly those that perpetuate segregation and that when the laws are okay, then justice will prevail. And we know that um, as the Black Power Movement came forward, and I am also going to talk about the Black Power Movement here in Texas, which there is a surprising legacy of, um, that that is a recognition that what was legislated in terms of justice wasn't really doing the things that um, the argument had been for them to do. And, and so we later see the origin story of critical race theory, that we don't have the counter stories that show the ruptures in the facade that is the rhetorical um, and belief in white supremacy, that it is locked into our whole way of seeing and understanding the world and one another. 
by those who have the shared fiction like me of white supremacy because they're served by it. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying that as a white person, white supremacy as a worldview serves me if I can believe that in that shared fiction, if I can suspend disbelief that it serves, that it doesn't serve everybody, then I'm in, I'm golden. Patriotic education, I argue, and all of these books are part of that, is an effort to suggest otherwise. So we had the first Reconstruction during this, um, after the Civil War, and the, uh, and then that collapses, not because it wasn't doable, but because we didn't, we worked from diff- from the wrong narratives. We worked from a reformist narrative, or a re- or, and those didn't work to disrupt the redemptionist narratives. Or the second civil rights movement, where again the second um, series of civil rights um, uh, laws became in uh, came into place, like the famous one, um, Brown versus the Board of Education, that officially desegregated the schools, even though it didn't actually in practice. And the third Reconstruction, um, some say that it began um, before Trump, um, that it began um, on uh, when Obama uh, came, uh, won the presidency and when we decided as a, as a nation that um, we'd broken through and racism was over um, and that what we saw in his second um, term was the beginning of the cracking of the of the um, infrastructure and the facade that made us understand that in the shared fiction of, of whiteness that um, is the American story. I do see it most clearly in the ruptures that happened in 2020 with the um, with the in, uh, inequities in terms of, of um, health care, um, in terms of, of labor, in terms of who is exposed and, uh, to COVID and who isn't, and especially that um, racial reckoning uprising following uh, George Floyd's um, uh, murder, um, following um, uh, Breonna Taylor's um, murder, um, and we just finished that trial um, with that cop, and that was that's something else I want to talk about. Also happening in 2020, um, a smidge before that, the breakdown of we're beginning to talk about race and class in some um, limited ways when Trump is elected, but that's definitely something that. Um, needs to be talked about as part of the story of the third reconstruction. This is the moment where people are saying the words systemic racism, including the, um, the, the conservative movement that is calling all of this attention to race culture wars and that calling attention to racism is making things about race when they're not about race. So that tension over controlling the narrative, that's what I'm talking about. In 
in this version, the story of white Texas is told by white Texans begins in 1836, period. Just as the story of white America as told by white Americans begins in 1776, period. To the conservative um, framing, uh, disagreeing with those who agree with and ascribe to the creation myth, those who ascribe to the creation myth as eight, Texas begins in 1836, America begins in 1776, those are described as patriots. The patriotic ones are the ones that believe in those. Those who do not are called um, upon as hating America. That is a very, very effective rhetorical tactic that has enabled some really scary stuff to continue to happen. Um, as um, as this moment of racial reckoning is happening, we're watching the claw back to control the narrative, and they're winning. But if we read these rhetorically, we can see these things as not as like fallacies or wrong because they are. That's not the point. The point is how is the narrative being controlled rhetorically, and we can look carefully and see these things as blueprints for white supremacy all of them, and even those that seem more subtle, even those contemporary ones. So, today's culture wars may seem unprecedented, but they're not. Um, uh, I, I'm interested here in all of the things that I look at. Who owns the story of Texas? In this story, the story of Texas, who's the hero? Who's the villain? If it's a story then a singular true story, then who is the story about? Who does it serve? Who is it um, in opposition to? If, and we know this, Texas is a concept, not a human or a group or even really a place. Um, the ways that the borders have functioned, there, are, as I said, imaginary lines that divide and conquer with very, very real, uh, excruciatingly painful and um, people-sorting consequences on the real lives of humans over generations. So the story of Texas, the story of Texas, is the story of whiteness. Um, in an early post, I have the incredible project, Whiteness Walks Into a Bar, and the argument throughout is that whiteness comes in first. Uh, whiteness walks into a bar, the bartender says, um, can I get you anything? The whiteness says, yeah, I'll take a scotch on the rocks. And then the bartender says, anything else? And the whiteness says, yeah, I'll take all of your resources, your political autonomy, and your sense of self-worth. And then the bartender's like, well, there, would you like me to run a tab? That's a beautiful telling moment of whiteness holding on to this narrative. Um the author of the recent book, Juneteenth, which I'll be talking about a lot, um, argues that Texas is a white man in the story. The white man is Stephen F. Austin. The clear villain in the story is Mexico, but since it's hard to get emotionally invested in a story about a concept, the human villain of the story is told as Santa Ana. This is what it looks like in the birth of Texas, um, D.W. Griffin's story, Griffith's story in 1916. A simple story needs a setting. So how about the Alamo? Why not? It's good enough for John Wayne to obsess about until he finally got his dream movie um, set up um, long after he began obsessing with it. 
the animal the Alamo is a symbol for for the Texas story of whiteness and you can see that fight over the control of the meaning of the Alamo happening as um, as the right in Texas loses its shit over the book um, the forget the Alamo that looks at other human stories and also the manufacturing of the story of the Alamo as the sacred space, which was not the first narrative about coming out of it as the way to understand Texas. I will talk to you about um, uh, the Alamo as it becomes sacred enough when Ozzy Osbourne takes a piss on it near in 1982, when Texas loses its shit on that too, banning him for a full decade. Uh, I have a, um, an upcoming post called Piss on the Alamo about that and its relationship to white supremacy. <clears throat> I do love this story. As the story goes, he was blind, drunk, um, and whatever else he was um, at the moment. He has, was really struggling um, uh, with substances at that point. He's blind, drunk, ambling in that area, wearing his trademark combat boots and his manager's evening dress. Um, uh, the uh, This manager who would later become his wife, Sharon Osborne. As he wandered, he had to pee. He dropped trowel, and the rest is history. He was not making a statement. Apparently, he didn't even know what the Alamo was, and he never mind why anybody would give a shit about it. His story is a full bladder, and he had to tend to it. The white Texas story is that we let him into our home, and he pisses on the azaleas, and that's not okay. So the so-called culture wars then is a fight for control over the narrative. To control the narrative is to control the meaning, the once upon a time bit. Once upon a time, a worthless place caught the attention of an honorable patriotic white man. This could be America, this could be Texas. In that honorable white hero um, built a kingdom of hardworking white folks who mattered to him and one another and then a bad guy threatens what our hero built. He was jealous. He wanted to destroy them. He wanted to raise the magic kingdom, magical kingdom to the ground. And then the bad guy sent in all his forces, vastly outnumbering our hero and our beloved kingdom. Here we're talking about the Alamo, for example, or we're talking about the American Revolution but I'm talking about the Alamo. So we have this MC-like, you know, ma magnificent fight um, in our minds, in the story as it's told in our textbooks and um, through public history and, um, and so on, that the true throwdown was the Battle of the Alamo. And this is where our white heroes fought bravely to preserve the kingdom of its people. They fought to the death. And then that fairy tale kingdom became the um, beautiful state of Texas, the land of the free, the home of the brave, and above all, the destiny for the prosperous, necessitated, a storyline necessitated by, will only work in the service of white supremacy and only to perpetuate the shared fiction that um, white supremacy is the natural state. So this is the story of Texas, the one that Abbott signed into law in 2021. This is one of my major talking points and uh, recurring themes that I'm going to want to keep returning to is that 1836 project, that one that resulted in 
the official story as written by committee by a number of, of people from conservative think tanks like the Heritage Institute and the Claremont Institute, the same people who were not historians but were politically motivated, um, involved with the 1776 Commission, which is always the case for patriotic education. I argue that it is always in the service of whiteness. And in Texas, the story that um, was legislated and written by committee was Texas or Texas, um, which says a lot of things, but in 15 pages, a brochure, a glossy one, a bizarre looking one, that would be the one that would then be handed out on the regular at the Texas Department of uh, Motor Vehicles. If you got your license, then you would get this story, Texas or Texas. It's the government mandated government sponsored story this is the 1836 project, the year that white men fought evil Mexico and won. The short period as the Republic of Texas, I think it's seven years before this, um, before as the Lone Star State, we went from Spain to Mexico. Then we fought bravely, apparently, according to the white supremacist narrative, for our freedom. We became a Republic of Texas and then pulling away from the official white supremacist narrative, we didn't have the money to continue as a state. So we um, pushed to become part of, of the states and pull from their resources. And then of course we seceded almost immediately because of um, the you know, per perpetual need and um, commitment to chattel slavery. And then of course, we know what happened next. This is the story of whiteness and in Flint, which is um, my acronym right now for far left in Texas, I'm approaching that story as the story of white Texas. The story about white Texans is the one, as I said, of heroes, Stephen F. Austin and villains, Santa Ana uh, or Mexico, where the setting is the Alamo. The characters in the stories are these cardboard cut cutouts that are allegories without critique. And that Again, to loop back, this particular podcast, this particular newsletter is about today's culture wars, those that are a fight to control the narrative about this country and this state, where the culture wars are purposeful and rhetorical, um, which, as I said earlier, ones that W.E.B. Du Bois calls in the souls of black folk, history is propaganda. And this, in the end, is the official story of Texas. This is the one that Abbott signed into law just last year. This is the one that is currently being handed out, or currently being uh, distributed at the um, DMV, which is bizarre and hilarious to me. This is an anti-CRT bill to, quote-unquote, save our children and the future from that woke agenda that would destroy it. The same woke agenda that is perpetuated in these uh, efforts to reconstruct the infrastructure that was not built to serve anyone but whiteness. And so I'll be talking about, um, as I said, um, the popular textbook, most popular, most long-running textbook about Texas um, uh, by Fehrenbach. Um, and I'll be looking at these contemporary documents like the 1836 Project and the 1776 Project. 
I'll be looking at all of these as they serve white supremacy. And um, I'll be looking at all of them within a dialogue of their pushback, of the Harlem Renaissance efforts to push back, um, the Black Reconstruction efforts to push back, and things that happen in the 50s, especially though Franz Fanon is writing in... um, uh, He's not writing in America, and it would take a bit to be translated... His book, The Wretched of the Earth, was a huge book for the Black Panthers in, in America and in Texas as well. I'll stop there. Um, I think that is a good stopping place. And then I will take up this podcast from here. <laughs>